Hey, welcome here. How are you? It's good to see you. Uh, I want to say a special greeting to all of our campuses. I had the privilege last weekend uh, to be able to visit uh, Central Abbey Saturday night. It is stinking hot in that building. So I want to say good luck to you guys on a, on a hot, uh, this is Saturday that I'm speaking. But then also got over to Mission, and uh, I am waiting for an invitation to East Abbey. So I would love to come see you, but I need an invitation. Anyway, it's great to be together. Uh, wonderful, gorgeous weekend we're having, right? So glad to be together in God's house. Uh, we are picking up, uh, carrying on in our study in the book of Colossians. That's what we're doing over the summer months. So you're going to need your Bibles. You will need them today in particular because we're going to be flipping back and forth in chapters 1 and 2, doing a lot of cross-referencing. Uh, what Paul is doing is typical to Paul. He is drilling a deep theological well. Uh, most of his letters are written like this. The first half, generally, is doctrine and theology. And in some ways, it can feel like deep slugging and plowing down into it. And then the second half, he gets into incredibly relevant application. And the book of Colossians is no different. And so we are still in the first half, and we are drilling that theological well. And what Paul is going to focus us in on are the basics that we need to have mastered in our spiritual understanding of who we are in Christ and who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us on our, on our behalf. And I know that you you will know this inherently, uh, that in every area of life, in every pursuit, in every endeavor, there is typically a set, of, a set of skills that if you can master the basics, you can then master the whole. And probably all of us learn back in the time or remember back to the day when we learned to first ride the bicycle or when we first learned to swim. Uh, but in every endeavor, you learn the, the so-called the rules of engagement. How do we play this game? Uh, and most importantly, how do I win the game, right? I want to win. And so whether it's uh, music or business or uh, competitive sports or casual sports, arts and science, there's always this rule of basics. So some of you might remember long ago, a guy named Robert Fulgham wrote this little uh, article, and it is still popular today. You'll see it on posters here and there. All I really needed to know about life how to live and what to do, I learned in kindergarten. Anybody remember that writing? I learned in kindergarten. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. And when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. So he goes on to say, you know what? Everything you need to know about life is in there somewhere. Take any one of those items and extrapolate it out into some sophisticated adult term and apply it to your family life, and it holds true and clear and firm, whether your work or your government. Think what a wonderful world it would be if the whole world had cookies and milk around 3 o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankies for a nap. If you master the basics, you will master the whole. And so we're in week four, we are up to chapter two, and we hit in chapter two, verse six, this little word, therefore, which means Paul is turning a corner. 
He's turning a corner from some of the doctrine into some, some relevant practical application. And a lot of commentaries and scholars believe that this little section, chapter 2, 6, and 7, is actually the central theme of this entire book. And so we're going to look at it very carefully. And Paul drills down deeply, and basically what he was saying in this text is, I want you to live deeply rooted lives. We're going to get to that, but that is what he is saying. So that you will not be easily deceived by false teaching that comes across your path. So that you will flourish in all of your life relationships. And, and I love this text in particular because it dovetails so beautifully with the mission that Jesus has left us with and how we've chosen to express that mission here at Northview. We know that the church has one mission. Every church in the world, if it's true to Jesus, there's only one mission because it is Jesus' mission. Go and make disciples. And churches say it in a number of different ways. We have chosen recently to start saying it like this, helping people become deeply rooted followers of Jesus. That's what we're on about. But really what that says, make disciples. Help people become deeply rooted followers of Jesus. So we're down to chapter two. I wanna do a quick recap. And I'm doing this because it's summer, uh, vacation schedules, travel here, there, and in and out. And some of you may have missed a week or two. So I wanna just do a recap. This book is written to a group of people that Paul has never met personally. This church was planted by a guy named Epaphras and in the home of another guy named Philemon. And Paul writes a letter to anchor them into their identity in Jesus Christ. And like most of Paul's letters, it's largely theological in the first half and then very, very practical in the second. So chapter one, he opened with this prayer and it was an amazing prayer. He's like, ever since I heard about your faith in Jesus Christ, I have not stopped praying for you. And these two things... I am rejoicing in what God has done in your life in the past. And he recounts all of the blessings of Christ that were accomplished in them. And then I am anticipating what God is going to do in your life in the future. But I have not stopped praying for you. I want you to be deeply rooted in Christ. And by the way, Christ has rescued you. He, is, he has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son whom he loves. And then Paul does this classic thing that Paul always does. By the mention of the name Jesus Christ, he heads off on a rabbit trail. And he's like, oh, and by the way, I just said the word Jesus. Let me talk for a moment about Christ. And he goes on in this deep, rich theological uh, text talking about the supremacy, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. By the way, this Jesus is the preeminent Lord of all. That was week two, verses 15 to 23. He is Lord over creation. He is Lord over every king and kingdom. He is Lord over the spiritual rulers and forces in the heavenly realms, over the angels and the demons. He is head over the church, and he is even Lord over death and the grave. He is the preeminent one. He's the big kahuna. He's preeminent. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, he says in verse 19. He is very God of very God, is how some of the old creeds, the Nicene Creed, put it that way. He is fully God and fully man, but he is very God of very God, and all authority rests in him, and he made our reconciliation possible. He made it his business. He made peace with God through the blood of the cross, that text says. And then he finishes out that chapter by saying, and that's why I preach this gospel. This is the gospel of which I have the joy to be a minister of, and it is our ambition to proclaim Christ that everyone might be mature and complete and whole. And so we just keep lifting up Jesus, lifting up Jesus, lifting up Jesus, making much of Jesus Christ. And that chapter ends with this statement. 
For this reason, I toil with all the energy that God gives me. Okay, so that's the previous three weeks. You're now caught up. We're into chapter two. Chapter two opens like this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What we hear in those words from the Apostle Paul, in the tone of his voice, is Paul saying, you know what, I desperately want you to know and understand what you have in Jesus Christ. I wrestle for you. I am struggling for you. What we're seeing is his pastoral heart, his love and his care and his concern. And it's interesting because Paul, we often think of him as this loud, brash, type A personality. He was large and in charge. He was courageous. He was a pioneering missionary and church planter. He always wanted to go where the gospel had not been named. I don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. Give me a brand new city where Jesus has never been named. Let me go in there and and break new ground. A, a, A driven man determined to get the gospel out. But as you read through his letters, you also see another side to his personality. You see a tender side. You see a gentle side, a compassionate side. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he he made the comparison in two ways. Uh, I am like a, a mother, a nursing mother who is gentle with you. And I'm like a father who is firm in discipline to you. When he wrote to young Timothy, he's like, Timothy, I remember your tears and I remember you with tears. You bring emotion to my heart. To the Corinthians, he, he was recounting all the things that he had suffered, the shipwreck and the beating and the imprisonment. And he says, but on top of all of those things, what keeps me awake at night is my concern for the churches. Like, forget the fact that I'm sitting in prison or that I've been beaten or I've gone through all these difficulties. What keeps me awake is my concern that the followers of Jesus in the local church would follow him. And here in Colossians, written from a prison cell, He says to them, I am wrestling for you. I am struggling for you. It's every pastor shepherd's heart for the local church carries this burden. It is every Christian parent's burden. You know this. The burden you have for your kids and for your grandkids, that they would understand, that they would know, that they would grow deep. It's every spiritual discipler in any way, shape, or form, whether you lead a Bible study table group, a community group in your home, any place where you have influence over other people's spiritual journey, your heart and your desire is that they would grow deep in their understanding. And so that's where Paul is headed. And the overarching theme embedded in this text is simply this, everything we need, we have in Christ and in Christ alone. That is the overarching theme of chapter two. Everything, everything we need, we have it in Christ and in Christ alone, particularly next weekend. We're gonna talk about that Christ alone piece. But in this text, we have one warning and two calls to action. One warning and two calls to action. So we're gonna start with a warning. We already read it, verse four and five. Paul says, I say these things to you so that you won't be deceived, that you won't fall into misinformation or disinformation. And it's the first hint that we get in this book 
about the false teaching that this letter is meant to address. And, and, and scholars call it the Colossian heresy. Uh, we don't specifically know what it was, but it was a mix of legalism and mysticism and asceticism. Legalism rules without reasons. Mysticism, you've got to have some higher spiritual knowledge or experience. Asceticism, you need to deny yourself of a few things. It was like a, a syncretistic buffet. They'd taken a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and a little bit of this. And that made sense because of where Colossae was located. Uh, we, we talked about it in, in week one. You might remember that Colossae was on an ancient trade route, the route north and south and east and west. So numbers of travelers would come through this village. Maybe they would stay overnight. And as the travelers came through, they would bring with them all the ideas from around the world, their religions, their philosophies, their thoughts on life. And little pieces were picked up here and there. In fact, I think Colossae was the first place to uh, come up with that coexist bumper sticker. That's what you had there. We're going to dive deeper into that next weekend. But Paul is basically saying, let nobody lead you astray from a simple and yet deep understanding of Christ's finished work alone. And if people are coming in and saying, you know what, there's some other rules you need to follow. There's some other experiences you need to have. There's some secret knowledge that you don't yet know the solution to that counterattack is this. You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to anchor yourself to what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf so that when some fine-sounding teacher shows up, you're not deluded by persuasive words, he says. You're not taken captive. So you need to know the extent of your spiritual riches that you have in Christ, and that's really what we're going to talk about for the next 45 minutes. In him... Chapter 2, verse 3 says, In him were hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that one little sentence carries the whole of chapter 1, 15 to 20. That great theological text is summed up in that little thought. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary says this. This verse is the Christological high point of the letter. It expresses succinctly the cutting-edge Christological point that is Paul's driving concern, and here it is, that Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs. All that one needs is found in him in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. That is what we find in Jesus Christ. Or to put it simply, like we've already put on the screen before, everything we need we have in Christ and Christ alone. That's what this text says. Okay, first call to action. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. We're just going to pause there. Start with the basics. Paul says, you have received Christ. And I want to camp out there for a moment. I don't want to just run past that. What did he mean, you've received Christ? What, what is he talking about? He, he says in the context, you've received good teaching and instruction from Epaphras. Epaphras brought the gospel to you. He, he grounded you in the truth, and so you have been instructed well. He will refer later to a guy named Philemon, the house church in which they met, and Onesimus, a slave who is now with him in prison in Rome. But what he's referring to specifically, you have received Christ, is this. He is talking about when you became a follower of Christ. 
When you became a believer, when you received Christ as your Lord, and we use a lot of different words for this. We talk about when you got saved, when you became a Christian, quote unquote, when you were born again, when you were converted. People will talk about this experience in a number of different ways, but basically it is this. You heard the gospel and you received the gospel. Not just it went in your ear and you understood it intellectually, but it went from your head to your heart. It warmed you. It stirred you. It made sense. And you're like, I need in on this. You needed to know that it was more than a theology lesson. It was more than just great doctrine. It was more than just a religion 101 class at university. You took that message into your heart and your life and you responded in saving faith. And there's a big difference. So, John's Gospel. We spent last school year studying the first half of John's Gospel. This school year, we'll finish off the second half of John's Gospel. You might remember way back last September, we started with these verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And then that text goes on to say, a few verses later, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Some did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And what Paul is referring to very simply to the Colossians is their salvation story. You heard the gospel, you believed the gospel. And God gave you new birth in your heart. He gave them this gift of life. And that theme of the free gift of salvation is central to our understanding of the gospel. That you do not work for your salvation. That you can't pray enough, give enough, serve enough, grovel enough to merit God's salvation. You cannot cover the debt of your sin. You personally, can never merit salvation. You can never do enough for you to be right with God. And so God took it upon himself to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he saw the mess we were in, he took on human flesh in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, and he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And then he offers it to us as a free gift. So there is a very popular text from Ephesians 2 where it says, by grace... You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not that you're a good church member or you've been baptized or you've done whatever it is. It is nothing you have done. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. Now, you know this. uh, The only way that a gift makes sense or has value is if the gift is actually received, right? So if you buy somebody a gift and they refuse the gift... What good is that gift? Or if somebody offers you a gift and you're like, oh, looks like a nice gift, but thanks very much, I don't want it. You need to receive it. So let me just ask the question, is there anybody in the room who today is your birthday? Anybody in the room? Come on, anybody? Okay, Uh, if there was somebody in the room, I have a gift for you right here. And at each campus, so Central and East and Mission, if there's somebody in the room whose birthday is today, your campus pastor has a gift for you. Now, you ruined my illustration, people. (laughs) There needed to be a person who had a birthday today, and they were going to come and get this gift, and it was going to be the illustration, what good is a gift if you don't take it, if you don't receive it? And no, you can't come and say, my birthday was yesterday or tomorrow. It's today, period. Doesn't work the other way. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... Paul says. So let me ask the question, is that true for you? Is that true for you? 
You have received. You've said yes to the if. And you're like, what specifically does that mean? Well, it means that you face the gospel. That somewhere in your life, somebody's come across the path and you've recognized your need that you were a sinner in need of forgiveness. You recognize that you were born walking away from God and that you need to turn toward him. I, I, I hear people say this, and sometimes in, in interview testimonies for baptisms or other places, somebody will say, I've been a Christian my entire life. And I know what they mean when they say that, but I want to say to them, nah. No, you haven't. Because there's no one who's been a Christian their entire life. Now, I know what they mean is I was born and raised in a Christian home. Mom and dad took me to church. I knew about God from the very beginning. I'd never know a time when I didn't know Jesus. But the fact of the matter is we are born walking away from the Lord with a rebellious heart. And at some point along the journey of your life, you come to a point where the gospel interrupts your path and you have a decision to make. The gospel says, I have got to turn and walk toward him. I have to receive this gift. And so it's why we talk about conversion. Uh, so we'll, I'll throw a picture up on the screen. You've seen this many times before. The markers of evangelicalism. They're saying like all the evangelical groups in the world, we share at least four things in common. A focus on the Bible, a focus on the cross of Christ, a focus on conversion. And so we put that U-turn symbol there. And a focus on activism. Evangelicals have always been a missionary people, always going out with the words of Jesus and with the hands and feet and the deeds of Jesus, working for justice, etc. We are active in the world. But that U-turn is significant because every single one of us at some point in time are confronted with the gospel and ask the question, will you turn and walk toward him? And so just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, let me ask you the question, have you done this? And you're like, well, how would I do it? Well, it's simple. It's as simple as saying yes. Yes, Lord. I understand that I am a sinner and I stand before a holy God rightfully deserving punishment for my sin. And I understand the debt that I have racked up that is too great for me to pay, but I have heard of your offer of life, Jesus, and that I can be forgiven and clean, that my sin can be washed away, that I can have a secure hope of salvation. And because of what Jesus has done today, I say, yes, I lay down my life and I pick up the life you give me. You can put it in your own words, but it is something as simple as that. Lord, I recognize what you've done for me. I recognize my need and I say, yes. And it's been my hope and prayer throughout this week is knowing that we're coming to this text that there would be men and women in our services this weekend that would say, it's time for me to say yes to Jesus. I've heard it long enough. I've been confronted with it long enough, but I've never made the decision. I've not yet received Christ. So as you have received Christ as Lord, Paul says, walk in him. Okay, now we get to, this is interesting because 35 verses into this book, which is only 95 verses long, we're a third of the way in and we get to the first verb. We get to the first commandment, the first imperative. Everything up till now has been teaching. It's been indicatives. And now Paul finally gives the first commandment in this text, walk in him. Walk in him. It's a simple metaphor. Live your life, walk this way, practice it out. Colossians 2, 7 goes on to say, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So that walk in him is modified in these four ways. You are rooted, you are built up, you are established, and you abound in thankfulness. Just gonna make a quick comment on each one of those. Paul is famous for piling metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor. Now, some of you in high school literature class, somewhere you had a teacher who told you, do not mix your metaphors. 
Paul never took that class. Paul, and we will do four of them here, and we're going to do five of them in the second section. He just piles things, one upon another upon another, like random thoughts, but I think he's trying to get a whole audience. And so he takes one from farming. He says, your life needs to be rooted, that you might have deep roots. And it makes me think of Jeremiah 17, one of my favorite texts on deep rootedness. Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Why? He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. He does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. He's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So he grabs an agricultural metaphor, be deeply rooted. Then he goes on to say, build your life. He grabs a construction metaphor. So for all the builders, all the developers, all the hammer swingers in the room, that you might be built up. I think of Colossians, Corinthians 3. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And then he says this, let each one take care how he builds it. Rooted, built up, and then he takes an illustration from the courts. Established. That word is translated in different ways, confirmed or strengthened or sustains, but it literally carries with it the idea of a legal identity, a legal document, if you will. It is established by a court of law. So uh, the difference between a dating couple or even an engaged couple and a married couple. And you will hear people say this all the time. Ah, what does that piece of paper mean? It's just a piece of paper. A wedding certificate, who cares? It's just a piece of paper. Well, if you have walked the journey called marriage, you know that that little piece of paper matters a ton, does it not? Because something happens in that transaction. You could have been absolutely, totally, fully committed to one another, saying, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you, but until you have that legal document and you stand before either a pastor in a church or a justice of the peace, and you go, you're going to be my woman for life. You're going to be my man for life. I am legally and spiritually binding my life to yours in the sight of God and man. It is established in law. And so Paul says an interesting thing. He says, in this context, it is God himself who guarantees, it is God who establishes his covenant with us. He gives us his spirit as a deposit, and he'll go on to say that even if we are faithless to him, he will remain faithful. He can't deny himself. And Ephesians 1 tells us that, in him you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is a guarantee you are established. It's a guarantee of your inheritance that we will one day acquire. And then finally, he says, in all of this, you will abound in thanksgiving. Rooted, built up, established, and abounding in thanksgiving. Abundance, exceeding, overflowing. And so if you're paying attention, you will see in that text an echo to the prayer that we looked at back in chapter 1. So in Colossians 1, 10 to 13, we said these four things, that Paul was praying for them, that they would bear fruit, that they would grow, that they would be strengthened, and that they would have incredible joy. That's how the book opened. I'm anticipating what God is going to do in your life. He's going to create fruit in you. He's going to grow you deep. He's going to strengthen you, and you're going to have joy. And now we get to chapter 2, and Paul's like, repeat, same song, second verse. I want you to be rooted. I want you to be built up. I want you to be established. I want you to be thankful. You can see the exact parallelism there. And what's critical to note, that in this passage, however, there is only one command. It's not rooted, built up, established, and strengthened. The only command, the only imperative in that sentence is the imperative, walk. 
walk. And it carries with it the idea abiding and remaining and keeping in step with the Lord. And if you remain in him, if you abide in him, if you walk with him, if you keep in step with him, you will be rooted. These are passive Actions, they happen to us. They're not what we accomplish, they happen to us. We will be rooted, we will be built up, we will be established, and we will abound in thankfulness. And Douglas Moo again, he says this, together, these participles emphasize that believers can live lives that exemplify the lordship of, of Christ only by remaining like branches, firmly attached to the vine in which God himself has placed them. So I think what Paul is saying here is, I've done my part. I proclaimed Christ. I've warned you. I've taught you. I want to see everyone grow to full maturity, but now you have a part to do. You've got to abide in Christ. You've got to walk with him. And that beautiful picture of John 15, the vine and the branch. Okay, there's a second call to action, however, and this one's a negative. The first one was positive. Walk in him. There's a negative one. So Colossians 2, and you go, up, go over to verse 8. And it says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let no one take you captive. Now, interesting, the chapter 2, verse 8, and then 2.16 and 2.18, which we'll look at next weekend, he repeats the same word, the same phrase, and you've got it three times. See to it, let no one take you captive. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. So the, the next two are we're going to deal with next weekend. We're just going to deal with the first one right now. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. And then I don't know if you noticed it when we're reading it, when he said three times the word according to. According to worldly wisdom or human tradition. According to spiritual sounding arguments that are actually, the phrasing he uses, are demonic. They come from the spiritual realm, the elements of the spiritual world, and not according to Christ. Not according to him. So they are teaching you according to human wisdom, according to spiritual knowledge in the heavenly realms, but not according to Christ. And then Paul, yes, once again, does what Paul always does. He's like, he mentions the name Jesus, and he's like, oh, Jesus, let's talk about him again. And then he gives us five more metaphors to remind us of what is ours in Christ. So the rest of the text goes on like this. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And you're like, oh my goodness, that is a thick text. And it really is. There is so much theology just pounded one upon another, upon another, upon another. These themes, classic the Apostle Paul. We're going to walk through these five metaphors. We're going to spend a little bit of time. Each one of these metaphors, he uses five of them, could take an entire message unto itself. 
You have been filled in him. You will see there in that text that we just read, chapter 119 and chapter 219 are identical. You were filled in him, in Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. And what is Christ has now been given to you. You've been filled in him. And what did that accomplish? And he gave these five metaphors. He talks about circumcision, baptism, resurrection, redemption, and triumph over spiritual powers. Five lessons. So I'm going to spend a little bit longer time on the first one to illustrate, and then we'll just pass over the four. And, you know, like, let's talk about circumcision for a a long time because it's such a comfortable topic to talk about. So the Old Testament act of circumcision, Genesis 17. It is given to Abraham to mark every little boy in the Jewish community on the eighth day that they were marked as part of the people of God. A sign literally in their flesh that would remind them, you have been set aside unto me. You are part of a covenant people. And like the flesh that was cut away, so too your old life is cut away. You're living a new life in Christ. So it was a literal, physical act, every little boy on the eighth day. But... Even in the Old Testament, circumcision was used as a metaphor and as a picture. So I'll give you some verses. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 16. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and to keep the commandments. And then he says this, so circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Your heart as the metaphor, and no longer be stubborn. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving this long list of curses and blessings, and he ends with this famous line, I've set before you life and death, and so make sure you choose life. And God told Moses in advance, you know what? The people are going to disobey. They're going to walk away. But when they come back, I am going to take them back. I'm going to have mercy on them. And in that mercy, he uses this very same metaphor. It's quite interesting. When you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice with all your heart, then the Lord your God will have mercy on you. And now look what it says. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Now, okay, a little bit deeper. It is really clear in Colossians 1 that Paul is not referring to Old Testament physical circumcision, but to the circumcision because he says done without hands. This is a spiritual metaphor. When the old body of death and flesh is laid aside, and if there's any doubt left whatsoever, then you flip over to Romans chapter 2, and he says there, you get into the family of God. You're a Jew, not because you've been circumcised, but by faith in Jesus. We're all children of the promise, children of the covenant. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. All of us are welcomed into the family. We are children of the promise. Now what Paul is saying is simply this. Your old life of flesh has been cut away. The old body no longer controls you. It has been laid aside. And when we get into chapter 3, we're going to come back to this theme again and again. Because chapter 3 talks about laying aside all the acts of the flesh that, that hold us down. And then Paul goes on and he stacks four more metaphors right on top of this. We were buried with him in baptism. 
in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that spills into the next metaphor, that of resurrection. That just as Christ was raised, so too you were raised. You were dead, but God made you alive spiritually. He called you from spiritual death into life. And ultimately, if the Lord tarries and we die, one day he's going to call these bodies out of the tomb in resurrection. He was the first fruits from the tomb, and we will follow him. And not only that, you had a debt hanging over your head, a different metaphor. You couldn't pay that debt. A long line of sins, and there was no chance of paying it. And Jesus took that legal decree written against you, and he took it to the cross, and he nailed it there. And it's a picture of Roman execution. That the crime of the criminal was nailed to the cross above their head, what crime they were guilty of. And of course, you know, Jesus, there was no crime in him. So they just nailed the title, King of the Jews. But what we're told here is in the spiritual realm, what is happening is that God, when Jesus walks down that road to Calvary, he is actually carrying with him the legal verdict of our lives. He's carrying with him all the legal decrees over our life. What crime was Jesus Christ crucified for? The crime he was crucified for were the sins of humanity. He was crucified for your sin and for my sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, our sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the wrath of God that we rightfully deserved is poured out on Jesus, and he writes across our debt, paid in full. Amen. So Martin Luther, many of you will have heard this story, a very famous story. He wrestled with Satan terribly throughout his life. And he shares the story of one night waking up with a very vivid dream, and and Satan was there in front of him, and he had a long scroll or a stack of papers, depending on how the story is told, and on it was the list of all of Martin Luther's sins. And he began to flip through it and read through them one by one by one by one, and and confronting Luther and saying, are these things true of you? Are these your sins? And, And Luther's like, yes, Satan, every single one of them is true, and more that you don't know about. But now I tell you, Satan, right across it in blood red, paid in full by the blood of Jesus. And he went back to sleep and slept well. And the old famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, second verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And then finally, one more. We watched the victory parade. He triumphed over them. And it's, again, a Roman general victory parade at the end of the war. The triumphant army is coming back. At the head of the train, they have bringing back all the people from their own people who were captured, taken as prisoners of war. They're at the front of the march. Second are all the new prisoners from the other nation that they've taken and all the booty. And then at the end of it, there is this great triumphant general who comes and everybody is singing his praise. And you're like, why does he use this announcement to make an announcement into the heavenly realms to every demon out there? Your days are numbered. Jesus Christ has dealt the decisive blow to your rule and your power and authority. He has triumphed over you in the cross. And so Paul warns his readers and he calls them to action. Don't let anybody confuse your mind with empty philosophy or deceitful schemes. Anchor yourself in who you are in Christ, how you have been filled in Christ, and everything that Jesus accomplished. 
He has cut off your old way of life. You were buried with him in death. You were raised with him in resurrection. Your long list of debts have been paid in full and the enemy has been defeated. Satan has no power over you anymore. This is what Paul wants them to know. All of this is yours in Christ. Or to put it, as we've said it several times, everything we need, we have in Christ and in Christ alone. So just as you received him as Lord, walk in him. Keep in step with him. Remain in him. Abide in him. Stay close to him. So A.W. Tozer was famous for an illustration he liked to use about a sailboat. And saying our lives in many ways are like that sailboat. We have no control over the wind. We only control the boat. And so we can prepare ourselves. We can posture ourselves. We can be ready for the winds of the Spirit to blow. The boat is made ready. It's not parked in the shop. It's out on the water. The, the sails have been trimmed, and they're ready to receive the wind, ready to capture the movement of God in our lives. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. Have you postured yourself in such a way to receive the winds of the Spirit? And so the first two chapters, one and two, Paul is drilling a deep theological well. And, and, and another week, we get over to chapter three, where it gets intensely personal. But basically, what he is saying is this, master these basics, and you can master the whole. Kindergarten for Christians, if you will. So two questions, and then we're done. Have you received Christ? If you've received Christ, walk in him. Have you received Christ? Have you said yes to him? And if not, what is holding you back? What is keeping you from that decision? What do you need to hear and know and understand? And it's been my prayer that the Spirit of God would open your heart and your mind. And then for many of you, probably the majority of you who would say, yes, I can remember the time I received Christ. Are you now walking in him? Are you remaining in him? Are you placing yourself in a posture where you can receive the ministry of the Spirit and be rooted and established and strengthened and built up in him? By God's grace, may that be true for us. Why don't we stand? Let me pray for you, and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, what a, uh, a wonderful text. It's a heavy one. It's a thick and a dense one. There is so much truth packed into these few short verses. But Father, we are so grateful that we know all that Jesus accomplished for us. That we look back and we look at his life, that he willingly took on human flesh, very God of very God, but he became a human to carry the weight of our sin, to live the life that we were not able to live, a sinless, perfect life, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, and then that he was willing to pay the ultimate price, that he was willing to go to the cross and allow our sins to be credited to his account, and in that finished work of Christ that, God, you did this miracle of crediting his per perfect life to us, and you look at us and you see the righteousness of Jesus. Oh, my goodness, Lord, would you anchor us in that truth? All the fullness of deity dwells in him, and everything that was in him has now been given to us. In Christ, we can become his righteousness. Our sins were nailed to the cross. They are paid in full, dead, buried, and gone. Lord, may that be our experience. May we abound in joy because of it. May you fill us with your spirit for daily life. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.